0: Hello everyone and welcome back to the Van Meren show. We are going to be talking to Mary Aberstat, an influential American writer and I believe one of the greatest cultural analysts currently writing today on the election and how the sexual revolution shaped our current political landscape. That's coming right up, stay with us. <laughs> My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and welcome back to the Van Maren show on LifeSiteNews.com. Today we're going to be talking to Mary Aberstadt, who is an American writer of both nonfiction and fiction. She is a magnificent writer of social commentary. And her most recent book, Primal Screams: How the Sexual Revolution Created Identity Politics, is an absolute must-read if you want to understand how we got to this stage. She's gotten some other books too: Adam and Eve After the Pill, How the West Really Lost God. These books will fundamentally transform your understanding of the culture and the civilization that we live in. And today I wanted to talk to her about the election and how the election that we just went through together was shaped by the sexual revolution and how we can see it shaping our politics in the future and what we need to do about it. Here is that conversation. So just to start off, uh, how are you feeling today about the election? Now you have have any thoughts about how things went?
1: Well, I have many thoughts, and uh, (laughs) one of them is vindication for a thesis that I've been trying to put out there for some time. And that thesis is that the sexual revolution is now having systemic, system-wide political consequences. And what I mean by that, Jonathan, is that we are seeing and have seen in the months that ran up to this election the growth of a brand new constituency in the Western world. It is the core of identity politics uh, and it amounts to these dispossessed young people, especially men, who have been dispossessed not so much materially but spiritually and in familial terms and Again, since the book, Primal Screams, I've been trying to put this thesis out there in the public square because there's a lot of talk, including around this latest election about how divided America is and how volatile America is. And people point to a lot of different putative causes for this. And people speak with justice about the inroads that Marxism has made among the young and that socialism has made among the young. These are very puzzling phenomena to people who were alive in the 20th century. Right. The bloody 20th century had buried all of that. So that's a kind of demand side analysis of the volatility out there. But I'm trying to get at something else. I am asking why we have these legions of young people who are desperate to attach themselves to collective political entities and most recently to protests and riots in the street on a scale that have not been seen in the United States in peacetime. And again, my answer is that we have created a whole new underclass, an underclass deprived of the usual North Stars of having a father in the home, of being a part of an organized religion, and we're seeing what what happens when people who don't have those North Stars enter the public square in large numbers, what happens is social unraveling. And that's what we've been seeing in the streets, not only of Portland and Washington DC, but Seattle, Rochester, New York, cities across the country, as we know, have been roiled um, in this very unique way. And again, (laughs) that's a long answer to your question. Mm I see vindication for the thesis of primal screams in what we're witnessing in the aftermath of the election.
0: I, that's one of the reasons I'd, I'd wanted to talk to you is because uh, I, I read and reviewed primal screams when it first came out and I was in, incredibly in, impressed by it. And then it felt like everything that happened from the book's publication to now just proved your thesis in ways that I don't think we could have imagined earlier in the year even like the, the Black Lives Matter riots in the middle of a pandemic and all of this it was it was really really quite crazy I really do hope I'll, I'll see you on Tucker Carlson one of these days kind of explaining that cuz your book really does give the, the missing piece of the puzzle the context for what's taking place and so one of the things I wanted to, to, to ask you is that if you, if you were on, say, the Tucker Carlson show and you wanted to explain to a, mass, uh, a massive lay audience uh, of people who aren't quite sure you know, what the sexual revolution is all about, how would you explain what's going on in the streets to people who have no idea uh, of all of the research that you've done and, and don't quite understand what's going on? How would you explain these, these undercurrents to them in, in a way they could understand?
1: Well, what people have to understand is that after the sexual revolution, humanity came to live in a way that is not in keeping with the kind of social creatures we are. That's the abstract way of phrasing it. Specifically, we are living in a world where something like 40% of American kids are growing up without a biological father in the home. If we're talking about African Americans, that number is 70%. Now for 60 years, we have known that fatherlessness is connected to a lot of bad social outcomes, everything from higher uh, rates of drug use to promiscuity to um, educational failure, etc. Everybody knows this. These are truths that are indisputable and no one wants to talk about them. It's obvious why, because a lot of households and families are implicated in these trends. We don't want single moms out there to feel bad And yet, Jonathan, the empirical evidence stands where it is. So that is to say, if you wanted to have uh, some kind of social um, uh, eclipse in the United States, if you wanted to see things fall apart, the fastest way to do that, the most efficacious thing you could do would be to increase fatherlessness. And this we have done for a couple of generations now. It's just that it had to reach a certain critical mass for it to pour into the streets. But at the same time, literal fatherlessness, as serious as it is, is I think just the most visible part of a much bigger crisis in the modern West. And that is a threefold crisis of paternity. You have people who don't know what it's like to have a father. And you have growing numbers of young people who also don't know what it's like to have a supernatural father, that is, people who have been brought up with no organized religion at all, who don't even know what that kind of relationship might look like or feel like, or don't even know that most of humanity has been involved in organized religion for as far back as we have written records. So these are two very important ways in which we are living differently from any of the generations to come before us. We have literally fatherless homes and we have spiritually fatherless homes on a scale that didn't exist before. No surprise, both these trends are also connected to the loss of patriotism. And when Mm -hmm. you look at survey data, again, especially among young people, we're talking mainly about millennials and zoomers. You see that these three things do not decline on a separate schedule they are declining at the same time. And the thesis that I want to put out there is that these kinds of filial piety are related to each other. And you don't have one collapsing independently of the other two. When you start to to chip away at the filial relationship, whether it's spiritual, or whether it's domestic in the home, or whether it concerns love of country, you end up weakening whatever is the muscle Uh, that uh, is exercised in filial piety in each of these cases. This, I think, is a truth that is not well understood, and it needs to be. Because when we look at these masses of young people in the streets of Portland, say, uh, or in any city that's been subjected to riots and what is politely called unrest, If you look at the biographies of some of these people, you see that what I'm talking about is born out. These are not young men who are going home to stable families, taking care of wives and children. They're not coming from robust networks of extended family, even at the level of individual uh, biography. You can see that these, these different kinds of unraveling, this indifference to country and flag this uh, hostility toward religion and the traditional family, these things are of a piece with one another and we will not get to a place where we can make things better in one area without understanding that these things are related.
0: Now, it's really interesting because in your book, Primal Screams, you talk a lot about the infantilism uh, 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 and the anger of so many young people. And we saw that again borne out in Portland, uh, you know, in Minneapolis and, and right across the United States. And one of the, the things that I was wondering is so many of these young people are obviously yearning and and they're angry and they know that they've been robbed of something. Uh, but they can't articulate what that is. I remember I remember talking, I interviewed Sir Roger Scruton um, just before just before he passed away, and he said that generations now have denied their children an inheritance they had a right to, which I thought was, was a very interesting way of putting it. And it kind of struck me because I, when I was leaving the house for work a, a couple of weeks ago, um, my three-year-old daughter was coloring at the table, and on my way out the door, I said, love you, and she said, I know. And just that, it kind of struck me. Yeah, she's three years old, and she's never doubted that. She knows exactly who she is, where she is. She's always felt safe. She's never doubted for a minute that she was wanted and loved. And so what what is the psychological and then political implications of several generations of kids growing up not knowing that, not feeling that sort of basic sense of security? Like, I, I think that when people talk about white privilege, they're actually trying to get at something that they don't quite understand, which is two-parent privilege. I was an enormously privileged person because I grew up uh, with a mother and a father who loved me, and I never doubted that, and that has set me, you know, gave me a massive head start in life. So how does this psychology project forward, and how, is, how does it affect our culture and our politics?
1: Well, as usual, Sir Roger Scruton nailed it. We have indeed created a cl- class of human beings, <clears throat> excuse me, of human beings who have essentially been cut out of the will cut out of human patrimony who don't know god who don't know the family who don't know things that illiterates for millennia before us could take for granted so how is that playing out well first i would observe that across the united states for decades now decades there has been a rise in mental health problems among the young anxiety depression ocd you name it and clinicians agree that this rise is real, that it's not just an artifact. It's not just that they've gotten better at seeing these things. It's not just that the stigma has lessened. There is a real rise uh, in these kinds of problems. Well, doesn't it stand to reason that this is also connected to the fact that people don't know who they are in the old ways and that when you don't know who you are, you get anxious and you get frantic and you get beyond reason, as we see on college campuses, for example, when we see these bizarre ritualistic enactments of identity politics, when we see protests over Halloween costumes and things that look trivial, but are deadly serious to the people who are exercised about these things. I mean, in some, I also think identity politics is onto something. I think that the desire to claim victimhood for oneself is authentic, but I don't think they understand the nature of their victimhood. The nature of their victimhood is that they have been robbed of what humanity could take for granted up until the sexual revolution, a stable family, a stable spiritual life. And having lost those things, and this is an important point, Jonathan, that I think is also not understood at all out there, Having lost those things, the dispossessed former children of the West are furious. They aren't only victimized. They're not just sitting in safe spaces, you know, with uh, tofu lollipops. No, they're out in the streets and they're angry. And we have seen this manifest itself over and over again. For example, who goes around disrupting people who are dining out on a summer night who goes around interrupting real family meals? I think people who have a resentment of others who can enjoy that kind of thing. Right. And who goes around, as happened last night in Washington, DC, in the middle of the night, shining flashlights into people's homes and trying to wake people up who are you know, asleep in the safety of their family. Again, we see this antagonism it isn't just political, it's more primordial than that. And I think that is a dangerous thing for society, which is why we need to understand it, which is why uh, I try so to analyze it in detail.
0: One of the, the, the interesting uh, things about, about what a lot of the mobs are saying during a lot of the riots is, is how many of them seem to actually hate the older generation. And there's a lot of, of, of data that indicates that children not only growing up in broken homes, but that children no longer feel as if they are the center of the home, that the father goes to work to provide for them, for the family, and that they're sort of an incidental, right? You know, you have you know one or two kids after you get the timeshare in Mexico and the car, but you 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 largely pay somebody else to raise them. You don't see them very often. You, they're not considered to be important, Um and then, a, like, a lot of the outrage is, is, is really, really genuine. There was a fascinating part of, of your book where you refer to the Me Too movement in the context of of the fact that so many young women seem to not have learned knowledge that other people know. So sexual assault of any kind is, 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 is obviously always wicked, but women also used to know that going up to somebody's hotel room at three in the morning um, was just a really, really, really bad idea. And and part of me wonders if if children have begun to hate their parents because they were felt incidental that, you know, dad and mom had split and they were pursuing, you know, different romances and and they were just sort of along for the ride while their parents self-actualized and tried to find themselves.
1: Yeah, there are a couple of important points in there, Jonathan. I do think that we have lost civilizational knowledge thanks to the effects of the sexual revolution on the family. And you and I have talked about this before, which doesn't make it any less important. <laughs> um, it used to be that people learned about that mysterious thing, you know, the opposite sex, in the context of their families. That is, they learned by watching their brothers, what those creatures are like, and by watching their fathers and uncles and cousins, etc., or sisters, mothers, et cetera. And this is a kind of social knowledge. This is how uh, all animals learn things. They, they learn uh, as young animals by observing other, others of their kind. And after the sexual revolution, you have a world in which there are not only fewer kids with a father in the home, with a male adult figure to model, but also there are a lot of boys who don't grow up with a sister. There are girls who don't grow up with a brother And of course the family has also shrunk as a matter of its extended version. So in other words, as sexually experienced as many young people today may be, as much as they may think they know, they are also more sexually illiterate about the opposite sex because they have far less experience uh, of the real thing in real life. And that is a way of being robbed uh, whose consequences we were only just beginning to see. Um, and I think they are also uh, prodigious.
0: To what extent has uh, techno- uh, technological change, social media, exacerbated ongoing atomization? I was having a conversation with somebody earlier, and and we were kind of discussing how back when Facebook uh, and Instagram and these sorts of things were just coming online, that everybody thought this was a real opportunity to connect with, you know, family and friends across the country. And it can be that, but it has largely proven not to be that. And One of the interesting things that somebody had mentioned was, you actually end up connecting with a lot of people, and then because of of politics and these sorts of things, a lot of people end up disliking people even more because they're connected to uh, social media, rather than meeting them at a family reunion once a year where you have a perfectly pleasant conversation so social media as we know now is is very very much dividing us so to what extent have the changes of the last decade on that file exacerbated the things that you're talking about in regards to fatherlessness and family ruptures
1: well of course it's like social media is like throwing gasoline on the fire right because Mm -hmm. the lonelier people get and the less informed especially about the opposite sex that young people get Uh, the more likely they are to reach for substitutes. And so a lot of social media is in effect a giant pacifier for a kind of nurturing that just isn't there. But unlike some critics, I don't think that social media is the prime mover uh, in the kind of social dissolution that we see today. And the reason I don't think that is that identity politics predates social media. Identity politics as a political phenomenon is born in 1977 with a declaration by a bunch of radical African-American feminists. And that document is the first known example of the use of the term identity politics. And essentially what that document says is, we can no longer rely on the men in our lives or other people in our lives. We will band together with people exactly like we are so that we can be politically effective. It's a very sad document because it essentially gives up on uh, a large part of the human race. Uh, So the fact that identity politics was growing before social media existed suggests that this flight to collective political identities that we see in identity politics is also, although made worse by the internet, something that exists on its own without the internet. And that's what I'm trying to dig into why are so many young people confused about that question who am i and again the answer is because they can't answer it in the usual ways they can't answer it the way all the human beings before us could they can't say in many cases uh, i'm a daughter of so-and-so i'm a uh, sister of so-and-so because these building blocks of human identity have in many cases been removed hence because every human being has to answer that question, who am I, they increasingly desperately uh, cling to these political identities as a way of acquiring, I think, a kind of social protection. I think we see that very clearly, the kind of social protection that, say, a dad in an intact home used to provide. If somebody beat you up after school and you came home and told your dad, at least you knew there would be some kind of consequence. A lot of kids don't have that kind of protection. So no wonder they seek out protection in these political groups that confer real life protection. I mean, look what happens if you run afoul of these identitarian groups. You can get in a lot of trouble. You can lose your job. So they operate in this sort of quasi-familial way, doing some of the things that the family traditionally did. But of course, they are poor substitutes for the real thing.
0: Yeah, and, and and this is very explicitly reflected in, in politics as well, because obviously a, a big part of this has been what well, people are identifying more as Democrat or more as Republican, because they want to identify as something, and those words are a lot. They don't just describe voting patterns now; they they now describe a large part of your identity. I remember actually Milo Yiannopoulos, the uh, you know the alt right figure who was who was you know briefly there and then exploded. Um, he actually would refer to Trump. as 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 Big Daddy, which he was just sort of shamelessly politicizing his his own self admitted uh, daddy issues, which was in a really interesting way. Uh, like it was just interesting how honest that was. And there was another bit of interesting data that indicated when when the news broke last election cycle that that Vladimir Putin and the Russians had probably helped with the WikiLeaks hack that hurt Hillary Clinton. Uh, approval for Putin went up among Republicans because. They were so committed to the Republican identity. To what extent do you think that the sexual revolution is directly linked to this new phenomenon where being a Democrat or being a Republican isn't just how you vote, but it's it's such a fundamental part of of who you are?
1: I think it's directly related to that. And I also think that the sexual revolution is directly related to the new populism that we see around the world, which is characterized by a certain number uh, of traits. A strong leader who typically is elected to office, offering to protect you as other leaders won't, offering to have your back, Mm. offering to settle your grievances. And we've seen this in numerous countries. I'm not saying that's all there is to the new populism, but definitely the paternal element is in there. People have written about Putin as the psychological answer to generations of fatherless russian kids especially fatherless russian girls and bolsonaro in brazil is also spoken of as a father figure donald trump as you give the example of ianopolis i think that's very insightful also a father figure to a certain kind of dispossessed person and you know to analyze matters this way is not to say that's all there is to them there's of course all of policy to discuss as well but It cannot be an accident, as the Marxists used to say, Mm -hmm. that uh, these uh, populist, uh, strong male figures are arising against a largely but not entirely Western backdrop um, of disrupted paternity uh, at the micro level
0: what one of the things that has always kind of bewildered me about the progressive media is their like intense fixation for the longest time on on calling Dr. Jordan Peterson this sort of poisonous alt-right white supremacist figure when in reality i i i, I if data existed, I'm actually pretty sure it would prove this thesis. Um, The alt-right was robbed by Dr. Jordan Peterson over and over and over again, because he was YouTube's father figure. He gave them uh, what a father should, but never did. He showed great interest in them. I, uh, I, I went to a few of his talks when he was around Toronto, and the way he would he would talk to these young men, this intensity on his face, the compassion on his face, uh, you could totally understand why young men gravitated towards him. In fact, just about an hour uh, from here, when he was giving a lecture at a university, there was a, a young man who stuttered when he was trying to ask his question because he was so nervous. And I... Uh, Peterson talked to him like he was the only guy in the room. said, Hey, he's like, he's like, calm down, man. Calm, just get it out. Don't worry about it, and just like reassured him and and calmed him down so he could a- a- ask the question. And so, to what extent are we able to have figures like a Dr. Jordan Peterson speaking to the fatherless in a in a productive way? Because obviously young men are susceptible to being in gangs, especially when they don't have families, which is what we're seeing with the looting and the rioting and, and all these identitarian movements. But then Dr. Jordan Peterson, I thought, proved the thesis that they don't necessarily need to fall in line behind a bad idea or a bad movement or a bad person. There's also a tremendous opportunity for somebody who genuinely cares and has the right advice and, and their their well being in mind and, and no sort of ulterior motives to also, you know, speak to these men and lead them.
1: Yeah, of course they can be reached, but they can't be reached unless we first acknowledge that there is a problem here. And that I think is what Peterson does so effectively he offers the idea that there is such a thing, not only as toxic masculinity, but as healthy masculinity. Mm. And what's unspoken in there is that there's been some kind of filial rupture, you know, in the transmission belt from father to son uh, and so on. And so I think, again, we have to, as a society, acknowledge that these choices are not neutral. You know, liberalism has pretended for a long time that the choices made after the sexual revolution were, were neutral. You might not want an abortion, so don't have one. But you know this, these were presented as morally neutral options and family breakup or uh, family non-breakup were sort of, at least the pretense was they were supposed to be morally neutral. This is not what has happened. What's happened is a sinkhole out there that is getting bigger by the year that has been caused by the simultaneously collapse, a simultaneous collapse of literal paternity and spiritual paternity and love of country or love of any collective, you know, that's uh, beyond the, the grievance movements of identity politics. And that's what we have to address. That's the void we need to look into. And all these years after the sexual revolution, we have a lot more information about what happened than people did in the beginning. Maybe in the beginning, it's made sense for a lot of people to say, well, from now on, we'll just do our individual things and society will be stronger as a result. That's not what has happened. The collapse of fatherhood, the collapse of the churches, and the collapse of patriotism are hurting this country and every country in which these trends have coalesced.
0: But it's also true, isn't it, that those who first threw away the value system, those who sort of spearheaded the sexual revolution, they still grew up in extended families with uncles and aunts, like they didn't have to pay the piper for the decisions that they made. That that happened uh, quite a quite a long way down the road, and so it might have seemed to make a lot of sense to them because they got to live the lifestyle without having to pay the the inevitable price that came later.
1: Yes, exactly. And that is also beneath what this intergenerational animosity that we were talking about earlier, which is so interesting. You know, when you think about ordinary language and you think about the meme of of Karens, for example, mm-hmm. the diss of, okay, boomer. Yeah. Where's animosity coming from. As you point out, Jonathan, the, the boomers who started it all had a lot of social capital to live off. They were still in families of numbers with, say, brothers and sisters who could do everything from like inform them to go into business with them, to be sounding boards for them. This is what we mean by social capital within the unit of the family. And the more you reduce that capital, the harder all of these things become. So in a a way that's, I think, tragically sad, uh, the animosity that the millennials and Zoomers feel for the boomers has some justice. There is a feeling out there that they've been robbed and not only materially, although that is also true, not only because they carry staggering amounts of student debt, not only because the, uh, the crisis of 2008 continues to reverberate and to undermine many family uh, finances, it's not just dollars and cents the Zoomers and the millennials sense that the boomers had access to cool and important stuff that they didn't. And they're right about that. They just don't understand that the main cool and important things they could have access to were family and church.
0: Yeah. And, when, when we're talking about intergenerate, intergenerational animosity, it, it's, it is quite incredible the extent to which everything we're dealing with right now with regard to the culture of death it does trace directly back to the sexual revolution. So in Canada now, uh, assisted suicide has, has been legal just for five years. And the number of people who apply for euthanasia or assisted suicide because their kids don't visit them and because they're lonely are just absolutely astronomical. And there's these heartbreaking stories of of parents um, who actually apply for assisted suicide, but ask their kids first, essentially a cry for help, right? Suicidal people frequently give somebody the opportunity to intervene, to give somebody a, a chance to prove they care. But often the children just quite simply don't. But there's this perverse logic to, Young people who were raised in daycare and didn't feel as if their parents cared about them at all now warehousing their elderly parents and not visiting them. It's sort of nobody takes care of each other anymore because we're too busy self-actualizing and it's making us incredibly miserable.
1: Yes, it is. And you know, Jonathan, loneliness studies are pretty much the hottest subject in sociology, and loneliness studies are everywhere in the Western world that the sexual revolution has reshaped. And it is terribly sad, but I agree with you that it's, it's of a piece. We have to ask ourselves, uh, especially those of us, you know, a shrinking number with any memory of life before the revolution, We have to ask ourselves, what message is internalized by young people growing up in a society with euthanasia, growing up in a society where abortion on demand is unremarkable? What does that mean to you when you think about your existence? It can only mean that life is cheap and you are not valued. And I think that message, deeply internalized, is also showing up inadvertently in the numbers on psychiatric trouble, in the hookup culture, and in other places where people go because they're, they're lonely and they feel unvalued and they don't know what to do about it because the traditional answers to those problems have been taken off the table for them.
0: Why is it that, that this isn't more widely discussed by cultural commentators and prognosticators? Because when you read your book, Primal Screams, it, it seems so obvious once it's it's laid out the way you lay it out, right? It makes so much sense, especially the way you describe um, that we have these ways of knowing ourselves that have now been lost. That makes so much sense. And the lost knowledge, it was one of my favorite chapters because I'd never considered it that way before. Just knowledge that isn't passed down is lost. And that's why there's so many people doing things that, to me, from somebody you know, from a two parent family, and I've got like two hundred cousins. It just seem it just seem asinine, right? You can't imagine you can't imagine why somebody would do the things they're doing. And that chapter really helped frame that all for me. Why is it that we can't have a discussion about the sexual revolution, about its fallouts, and maybe start analyzing whether or not this was was or was not a good thing? Why is this a discussion that that seems to be so limited in its scope and, and who is willing to partake in it?
1: Well, there are a couple of answers there, Jonathan. One of them is that in the decades since the sexual revolution, I believe a quasi-religion has grown up uh, to protect the prerogatives of the revolution. And in this quasi-religion, abortion is a sacrament. People feel absolutist about it. It is why uh, the progressive wing demands abortion up until the moment of birth. It's why there can be zero compromise on that subject. Because essentially, this quasi-religion of the sexual revolution is one great big kind of collusion. You know, Some people want their uh, right to abortion, and some people want their right to sexual minorities uh, enjoying the perquisites of sexual majorities, that is heterosexuals. And everybody wants their thing. And they understand that any attack on one iota of any of those planks is going to be a problem for the whole edifice. This actually gives me hope because it makes me think that they know themselves to be more vulnerable than uh, the traditionalist side typically understands them to be. So that's one kind of answer. Why can't we have an honest conversation? Because so many people are so dug in that this is in effect, their religion safeguarding what the sexual revolution has delivered to them. And also of course, it's human nature. Um, I often think that in some ways we're in the situation of white people in the South before the civil war. And that is to say, you've got good people, you've got bad people, but you've got a real deep problem with your society called slavery. And a lot of people are implicated. Hardly anybody isn't in one way or another. And so when you have that kind of toxic foundation to your society and lots of people are implicated, nobody wants to be the first one to stand up and say, hey, I think this is wrong. I think that's where we are with the sexual revolution. There is tremendous resistance uh, to understanding its negative fallout. And people are very dug in about it, um, including people for whom it is no longer operative in the sense that they're now <laughs> old. <laughs> um, yeah. Since it stays the same. Um, for a while, I thought that Me Too might have been an end run around all that. You know, that me, the Me Too movement was finally going to crack this problem get you know get below the surface of the ice surrounding this subject and i think the promise was there uh, mm. because there was so much confusion and so much depredation and so little knowledge of the opposite sex you know exhibited in those uh, me too stories and maybe that window closed i don't know but i am hopeful that we can get to having a conversation about this just because some of the most pressing problems we're facing have this as the source, have the sexual revolution, the unquestioned uh, dominance of the sexual revolution as as their source. Whether we're talking about loneliness in old age, or all the romantic trouble we see among young people, or gender confusion, I think all of these things are rooted in what happened after uh, procreation and recreational sex were separated from one another.
0: Right, and in terms of uh, of the gender confusion and sort of the ever expanding panoply of of LGBTQs plus choices that are now available, uh, you probably saw the the polls that came out a couple of weeks ago indicating that up to a quarter of young American women now identify as somewhere on the LGBT spectrum, and. What's fascinating is that a study done in a bunch of British high schools indicated that girls felt they had to identify as something because it was boring to be straight. It was it was were their was was their exact words. And this seems to, to feed into it as well, but I've been disappointed by the lack of curiosity. Um, displayed by those reporting the numbers or reporting on the numbers up until about 10 years ago uh, the number of people identifying as as gay straight or, or bisexual or sorry um gay lesbian or bisexual was pretty safely under three percent i think four percent was the highest that it had ever spiked and so even factoring in um, how cultural acceptance has made people more likely to openly identify you know spiking to to like a quarter or more of the of the population is is just insane as is the the rates of, of kids who are identifying as transgender which Abigail Schreier recently exposed in her in her brilliant book on, on that subject to, when why why can't we talk even even about that like there's, there's, these numbers are jumping by double digits and nobody seems curious as to why that's happening and I think primal screams explains it perfectly
1: well of course as soon as anyone tries to give an honest account of this they're accused of encouraging suicide in teenagers. I mean, I think the progressive wing has very successfully put out the idea that to question any kind of minority sexual identity is to risk introducing the idea of suicide into a teenager's brain. We know that is duplicitous and that's ideologically driven, but I think that's been a a powerful enforcer of silence in these matters. And I also think that some parents are simply terrified that someone will get to their kids. And that's also human nature. But sooner or later, we do have to have a conversation about what's going on in those numbers, as you point out, Jonathan, because this is not, this cannot be a case of born that way, not when we see how rapidly things have changed and during the past 10 years in particular. From my perspective, this gender confusion is one more regrettable fallout uh, from the fact that the sexes don't know each other very well anymore. I mean, if you think of it from the point of view of a young girl, say without brothers, uh, maybe without a dad in the home, um, who doesn't have any male figure in her life uh, who's close to her, she's odds are going to be terrified of young men. Mm. They are, generally speaking, bigger and stronger, and who knows what they're about. And if she, you know, goes by the internet, they're into a lot of bad things, as a lot of them are. Mm -hmm. So that's what I mean about how the shrinkage of the family has introduced these new pathologies that really weren't there anymore, or really weren't there uh, before this. And the one we're talking about, I think, is, is very much one of them.
0: Uh, as a as a final question, uh, I I noticed last night some some good news very very early in the morning I think it was four a.m. Um, as some of the first prognostications on the vote counts in Florida came in <clears> that there was a lot of uh, a lot of of the Hispanic uh, voters who went for Trump. To the surprise of, of of almost everybody, is because they were socially conservative and economically liberal, so they were they were considered to be more economically oriented Democrat, but because of their socially conservative values, they voted uh, the Republican ticket this time around, and we've we've discussed before. This opportunity of a new coalition for conservatives that fuses together uh, family-friendly economic policies with with social conservatism, uh, along the lines of what Viktor Orbán has been experimenting with to to some to some success in in Hungary, and in terms of the marriage rates, the divorce declines, and the abortion uh, um, the abortion rate plummeting uh, to, to incredible success in certain areas. The one thing that a lot of people will bring up in response. Although I do think last night, if you look at the vote distribution, it's quite obvious that there's a lot of things up in the air. A lot of coalitions um, are available. Demo- uh, demography is not destiny in, in terms of um, political coalitions. But a lot of them will say, and I know you, you've mentioned this in your work several times, that the government has also become... Uh, the husband, the father, to a lot of families by essentially providing that role. Uh, Peter Hitchens has written a lot about uh, this this taking place in the UK as well, and we discussed that with him at one point. How, in your mind, do you promote uh, a family friendly economics that can work towards a new coalition dedicated to strengthening the family as a fundamental social building block, without having government assistance be a replacement uh, for the father or the husband in the home?
1: Well, again, it starts first with understanding. We aren't back in 1980, say. We can't pretend that we don't know these things. We can't pretend that the state should be indifferent between family formation and its absence. Two generations, at least, of sociologists have established the social problems that have resulted from living the way many of us do. So absolutely... It is time for tinkering with family policy in America. And if that runs afoul of certain purist libertarian considerations, so be it. Because the state can't afford to be indifferent as between people who want to form and keep and nourish families and people who don't. So we know these things. I think that's our strongest possession right now is that we can point to data. We can point to empirical fact. And we should go after everybody, we as conservatives, um, who shares that sense that one of the most important things government can do is precisely shore up the most important private space that human beings enjoy. Um, I think we should reach out, of course, not only to the like-minded Hispanic community, but to the Asian community, to others who generally speaking are part of are theoretically part of that coalition who put uh, family first and uh, are very much in the American mold of hardworking immigrants who are here in part because they want space for their families to grow and thrive and they want the government to be on the side of that.
0: Well, thank you so much for taking so much time to talk uh, through all these things with us.
1: Thank you, Jonathan. It's always a pleasure.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Mary Eberstadt. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Please go to the podcast tab on lifesitenews.com to subscribe and check out other podcasts or subscribe for upcoming podcasts. And of course, you can always get your news, your commentary, and your opinion columns at lifesitenews.com on all the important pro-life and pro-family issues. Thanks so much for joining us this week, and we hope you'll join us again next week.